0: This is Ponder Extra with me, Rob Weinberg.
1: Okay, and me, Nathan Rainsford.
0: And we've come to meet Nadim Roberts. Nadim is a Canadian journalist working for CBC in London. And his short story, Mangala Luke's Highway, which is a factual piece about an extraordinary story which we're going to hear all about, has been making some waves. It's been published in Granta, in a special edition of Canadian Writers, and has been generating a lot of interest further afield in the publishing world. Nadine, thanks for coming and talking to us. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this story.
2: This story begins with sort of a chance encounter in my hometown of Vancouver and the story is the story of a man named Bernard Andreessen. I had been doing some research around HIV within Canada's indigenous community. And had just kind of thrown out a net and was meeting various people, and Bernard happened to be one of the individuals that I met, and when I met him I learned that not only had he been living with HIV for a number of years and survived that, he had this kind of remarkable story of survival that went back to his childhood, and that is sort of where the story begins. So Bernard was a student in a residential school, and for people that aren't familiar with residential schools, this was a system of schooling where Indigenous children in Canada were taken from their families and their communities and put in uh, government-run, usually church-operated schools, where really the purpose was to untrain them out of their kind of Indigenous culture and identity, take away their languages, take away even their faith and religion and really try and remake them in the mold of the colonizer of, you know, white Christian Canada. Um, And these schools operated for over a hundred years, and tens of thousands of children went through these schools all over Canada. And Bernard, he was one of the, the children that was taken from a community high up in the Arctic in a town called Tuktoyaktuk, known colloquially as Tuk. And he was taken to a school about 120 kilometers away in a town called Inuvik. And Bernard and two of his friends decided one day to leave the school. They decided to try and walk back home. They were 11 years old, and really had no conception of how far home was. And for this reason, lost their way. And Bernard was the only one to
1: survive this journey. So maybe we can hear the beginning of that story. Sure.
2: Dennis spotted the cigarettes on their dorm supervisor's bed. He hesitated a moment then stuffed the pack of Rothman's king size into his shirt pocket. No one was around to witness the offense except his two best friends, Jack and Bernard. The rest of the boys in Stringer Hall, the residential school dormitory, were outside playing. Dennis, Jack and Bernard shot out the front doors and passed the playground to find a quiet place to smoke. The warm arctic sun, which would not set for a few more weeks, hovered in the sky above them as they passed around a cigarette. It was 24 June 1972, a Saturday, and in a week the three boys and their classmates attending the Sir Alexander Mackenzie School in Inuvik would head home to their small hamlets across the Arctic for summer break. By seven o'clock that evening, the boys were back in the dorm. Their supervisor, Annie, was in a rage. She demanded to know who had taken her cigarettes. Dennis eyed Bernard from the far end of the dorm. He looked frightened and shook his head signaling for Bernard not to say anything punishment at residential school could be severe especially for stealing but Bernard would never snitch on Dennis the next morning after chapel Bernard overheard a few of his classmates telling Annie they knew who took her cigarettes they'd been caught Bernard ran to find Dennis and Jack he found them in Grolier Hall the Roman Catholic dorm and suggested they hide somewhere they walked into the hills behind their school, sweating under the hot sun, until they found a pond. They waded into the cool, shallow water with their clothes on, splashing each other and laughing. Dennis still had the cigarettes in his shirt pocket. They were ruined now. From the pond, the boys walked in the direction of the highest hill, where they could see power lines and spooling to the northeast. The 69,000 volt transmission lines had been strung the previous month. These lines go all the way to Tuk, Dennis told his friends. He and Bernard were from Tuktoyoktuk, on the shores of the Arctic Ocean. If they followed the power lines, they'd be home in a few hours, Dennis said. School will be over soon anyway, and if they left now, they could avoid getting in trouble. They took one last look down the other side of the hill towards Inuvik, and began walking. Around them, delicate flowers bloomed among the moss, and sharp blades of grass scratched their ankles. They joked about how tough they'd be by the time they got home. Dennis and Bernard were cousins who'd grown up together in Tuck. At 13, Dennis was squat and still waiting on a growth spurt. Bernard, the only 11, was taller and had long limbs outgrowing his torso. His hair fell messily onto his forehead above long almond-shaped eyes. Jack was from Saks Harbor, a town on Banks Island, the westernmost island of the Arctic archipelago. He was the smallest of the three, and prone to illness. Hours later, the midnight sun was low on the horizon, reflecting off a glassy lake. Its glare was now soft, bathing the land in shades of magenta and gold. Ahead, Dennis saw familiar formation. Look, said Dennis, there's a Pingo. In front of them was a forty-foot-high conical hill that looked like the Pingos that surround Tuck. Pingos are only found in a permafrost environment and are the result of frozen ground being forced upwards by the pressure of subterranean water. For centuries, the Inuit of the Mackenzie Delta region have used them as navigational aids and lookouts for hunting. Visible from dozens of kilometers away across the tundra, they jut up against the northern horizon like mini-volcanoes. The boys race towards the Pingo. But it was just another hill, one of many with no end in sight. Worn out, they looked for a place to sleep and found a log that would shield them from the chilly northwest winds. All they had on were t-shirts, shorts, and sneakers. The day had been hot, but now they were shivering. They huddled closer to keep warm, and Bernard began to pray, as he did every night before bed at Stringer Hall. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, he whispered to the skies above. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.
0: So why did the three boys not return to the school? Was it really the fear of punishment for stealing the cigarettes?
2: You know, these schools were places where children were made to be scared. These schools were not nice places. The teachers and the nuns and the clergy that ran these schools, they weren't there thinking what was best for the children. And so really, there have been thousands of cases of children who were both physically and and sexually abused in these schools, children who died in these schools. And really, the horror stories of the things that happen in these schools. It's kind of not hard to understand why they would turn away and never go back, especially once they'd stolen from one of their teachers. They would not be welcomed back with open arms. They would likely be punished very severely, likely beaten. And if you're an 11-year-old child and you think you can avoid a severe beating, then chances are you'll do that. But also they were so young that they had no conception of how far away their home was. And this stretch of the Arctic, there's really nothing there. It's it's wilderness in its purest form. It's a wet land, especially in the summer. It's uh, almost more lake than land, much of it, especially when the ice melts in the summer. And it's incredibly dangerous. And even for an adult who knows the lay of the land quite well, it would be a challenge to try and navigate your way through it. But imagine now these three boys, children, trying to navigate this land to get home. They didn't really have a chance. And it's miraculous really that even one of them survived this. Maybe we can hear from your first visit. Today, the only way to travel between Inuvik and Tuk in the summer months is by plane. In June 2017, 45 years after Dennis, Jack and Bernard started walking home from residential school, I boarded a 19-seat, white and blue, D-H-C-6 Twin Otter. The 140 kilometer flight would take 30 minutes. From the air, the hummocky landscape resembled a camouflage pattern, greens and browns of all shades, pockmarked with hundreds of lakes and waterways. What from high above appears to be solid grassland is anything but. The permafrost prevents water drainage, and after the spring thaw, the land above it becomes a bog of decomposing vegetation and moss, that, like quicksand, can swallow animals as large as caribou. During the winter months, an ice road capable of supporting cars, trucks, and skidoos along the frozen Mackenzie River used to connect Inuvik and Tuck. But a month before my arrival, the ice road was closed for good by the government of the Northwest Territories after decades of service. From the plain I could see occasional glimpses of a new, near-finished road. This was the long-awaited Inuvik-Tuk all-season highway that would open in a few months. In 1959, the Canadian government decided to build a 730-kilometer gravel road from just east of Dawson City, Yukon, to Inuvik. Oil and gas exploration in the region was thriving, and a highway across the Arctic Circle was needed to transport equipment and men to and from the drill sites. By 1972, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau had announced the construction of yet another highway between Fort Simpson and Inuvik, after which, he promised, work would begin on the final stretch of highway that would connect Inuvik to Tuck. Trudeau compared the new roads to the famous routes pioneered by fur traders 150 years earlier. This road has been a dream until now, he said. It remained a dream for a long time. The final piece of the Roads to Resources program, which would connect Inuvik to Tuck, and by extension Canada to the Arctic Ocean, immediately ran into problems. Oil and gas exploration waned, and the project was deemed too expensive and challenging. For half a century, the road remained a dormant hope. Then in 2010, Prime Minister Stephen Harper arrived in Tuck for a visit. Tuck's Mayor Mervyn Grubin asked Harper for one thing and one thing only. The highway, a legacy project that would link the country from coast to coast to coast and reduce the cost of petroleum exploration in the Beaufort Sea. Harper was convinced, and planning for a highway started the same day he flew back to Ottawa. Upon landing in Tuck, I rode a cargo van into town. Driving down the town's main road, Beaufort Road, we passed small wooden frame homes resting only a few meters above the low peninsula that curves in the Kugmalit Bay on the Arctic Ocean. The next day I attended the hamlet's Council meeting. The current mayor, Darrell Nasogaluak, and his fellow councillors eagerly discussed the $500,000 beautification project underway for the opening of the highway in November. In anticipation of all the tourists they hoped would now visit, workers were coating dozens of buildings in candy-like shades of paint they hoped would make the town unforgettable. Since he'd become mayor, Nassagalawak's job had consisted largely of preparing Tuck for the opening of the new road. Beyond attracting tourists, he told me he hopes the road will renew interest in oil and gas drilling in the region. Nassagalawak challenged Justin Trudeau's five-year Arctic drilling ban, telling the PM at a recent town hall meeting in Yellowknife, we're at a loss of what we'll do next. At 32%, Tuck's unemployment rate is three times that of the rest of the Northwest Territories, and five times the Canadian average. For Nasagaluak, the road represents more than an all-weather route to their hamlet. It's a long-awaited path that he and many others in the town of 900 hope will help their community prosper. In the coming months, the council will begin consulting on the name of the new highway. Mervyn Grubin's family wants the highway named after their recently deceased patriarch, Eddie Grubin, Eddie founded E. Grubin Transport, which was building the highway with Inuvik-based Northwood Industries. He was an influential figure in the Northwest Territories, and died a multimillionaire at age 96. But another proposed name acknowledges a different part of Tuck's history. Many of the town's elders are residential school survivors. None of them have forgotten that day, in June 1972, when three of their classmates ran away. Back when the road was still a dream those boys attempted to walk it.
1: It seems to be that there's a raised consciousness now about the kind of horrors that happened in these schools. But was there a contemporary consciousness of the sort of horrors that were occurring in these schools? Were there people protesting their existence at the time?
2: You know, it's interesting,
1: because part of reporting and researching this story,
2: I went back to a lot of the news articles and magazine articles that were written about residential schools in the 60s and 70s. And... I don't think that there was a consciousness about what was happening in these schools. There is sort of one story that has become quite well-known recently. It's a story of a boy named Chaney Wenjack. And his story was written in sort of a national magazine at the time. And he was a boy who had escaped a residential school in Ontario and tried to walk back home to his family. And he died on the way. And that story at the time, it had kind of raised some of the issues that would eventually be talked about in Canada, but it took many years, it took decades after that story was published. It really wasn't until Canada had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission set up that really investigated in depth what had happened in these schools and took the testimony of thousands of survivors to try and piece together what the legacy of these schools mm. were. Because the last of these schools only closed in the late 90s, and so mm. It's only been about 20 years since the last one closed. But the intergenerational trauma that was experienced by these children, that has now been passed on to generation after generation. And we see uh, so many of the terrible issues being faced by Indigenous people in Canada really have their root in the treatment of these children in these Mm
1: -hmm. schools. It raises a really interesting question about the responsibilities of journalism generally, because often we think about journalists' duty is to the present and to kind of spread awareness about the present but here it seems to show us that journalism also has a responsibility towards the past and showing the kind of horrors of the past and in the piece we learn about the kind of that truth and reconciliation process and how some of the people who went to these schools were compensated financially what are your thoughts on the responsibilities of journalism to the past? I think that often the first draft of
2: history misses out a lot And I think, especially when you're doing long form journalism, you really have a duty to try and report and research, understand the context for the issues you're writing about. And oftentimes the best way to do that is to find a single character or a single life that can really take your reader on a journey. And in this case, you know, Bernard is kind of able to take the reader to his childhood in a residential school and then tell also the next 50 years of his life to understand over time sort of what the impact of the school was on him and his classmates, what the impact of sexual abuses over generations, what the impact of uh, alcoholism is. And so I think, you know, rather than kind of looking at statistics or or numbers on this, you try and understand the impact, your one person's life. Humanity. And so I, I certainly think that oftentimes contemporary issues when they arise, we don't look at the full context or the full background or or the full history. And so in the story Bernard has HIV which he lives with for many years, but you wouldn't understand unless you looked back to see why Indigenous people in Canada, for example, die from HIV and AIDS at such a higher rate than other Canadians. Or, so, so really, I, I think you, you need to go back, you need to look at the history to understand
0: the present. When you're researching and identifying such an individual, in a sense, this is his story, but you're making it your story. So to what extent do you feel responsible to him? Are there moments where there are parts of his story that you want to tell, but it's too intrusive maybe, or too private, or too painful? Mm. And then when you get the acclaim for the story, how does that then get back to someone like Bernard, who has lived all of that?
1: Because even in the piece, it mentions that he withheld that he was sexually abused when he was being compensated.
2: That's right. I think that as a journalist, you have two kind of overlapping responsibilities. One is to the individuals whose stories you're trying to tell, and the other is to the truth. But I don't think one supersedes the other necessarily. And I think especially when you're working on a kind of longer term piece that's going to take months or even years to finally be published, you develop a relationship with your sources. And In this case, I knew Bernard for a year before the story was published. And so we did develop a friendship in that time. And I think I really wanted him to see himself as my partner in telling this story because this is the story of his life. This is not my story. I'm I'm, I'm the scribe, but really this is his story. And I wanted him to feel that he had ownership over it and that he could trust me with the details of his life. And it took time, you know, we, we probably spoke over a dozen times, you know, we shared many coffees together, we got to know each other quite well, to a point where I think he trusted me and I think the process of doing these interviews was in, in some way cathartic for him as well. I think to be a good journalist, you have to be, first of all, just a really good listener. And I think you, you go into those situations, You're not really sure what the story is going to be initially, but you sit and you listen. You don't pass judgment on anyone. And you try and tell the story as truthfully as you can. The Tuk is a town founded by survivors. In 1902, contact with whalers led to a measles epidemic in Tikigaryut, an Inuit settlement at the mouth of the East Channel of the Mackenzie River. The dead in Kitigariut outnumbered the living, who now consider the land cursed. A young man, Mangilaluk, went looking for a new place to live. He chose a location 30 kilometers away, Tuktoyaktuk, In Evaluit for it looks like caribou. When Mangilaluk arrived at the place that would become Tuk, there was nothing on the peninsula but a few sod houses used for fishing in the summer but it was an ideal site for a new start for his people on the edge of a harbor and prime fishing ground for beluga and whitefish. He started to build a permanent log house and before long other families followed. Mangilaluk served as chief, or umialik, for decades. Stories of his bravery, leadership and hunting skill persist today. People believed he was a shaman with the power to shapeshift into a polar bear. In July 1961, two decades after he died, Mangilaluk's granddaughter, Alice Felix, was eight months pregnant. While home alone one evening, she heard a knock on the door. She wasn't sure if she was awake or dreaming when the door swung open. A three meter tall polar bear stood in the doorway. It walked up to her, put its snowshoe sized paw on her pregnant belly and began to speak. If it's a boy, you name it after me. A traditional belief among the Inuit is that human spirits live on after death. After passing, the spirit of the deceased is able to inhabit the body of a newborn should the child receive the spirit's mortal name, whereupon the child acquires its namesake's soul and powers. When Alice gave birth to his son two weeks later, she gave him two names. The first was Mangalaluk. the second was Bernard.
0: How much does a story like this become part of you as a writer? You've discovered a story. It's occupied several months of your life. It could have a life beyond the page of Granter now. So do you find that somehow this story has actually become... A mission for you or a campaign for you to get it told? Does it take over from everything else that you're doing or want to write about?
2: It certainly does. I mean, when you visit a really small community like that, there aren't many stories about that part of the world or these people that are told. We don't often think about these small corners of the world. And so I think to find someone like Bernard, who's from this place and has had these experiences and is willing to share them, I think it's a remarkable and important window into a life and experiences that we otherwise would never hear, that uh, we ourselves would never get to experience. And and I think that is sort of part of the mission of journalism, is is to help us understand our world a bit better, help us understand the people in our world a bit better. Mm. Because
1: I suppose it sheds light on a corner of the world within a nation which is so prominent and um, there have been a number of journalists recently who have been doing things like that. You had S-Town from the producers of This American Life, and that also shed light on a community that exists but the fringes of mainstream society. Did you listen to S-Town? I listened to S-Town, I really enjoyed S-Town. What they did so well with that
2: is that this character, he just brings you into this world that you otherwise wouldn't know or wouldn't experience. And I mean, he's an incredible character and just the storytelling in S-Town, I think was just superb. I probably binged it in two days. There's a lot of
0: controversy about it, wasn't there? Because that journalist was delving into this character's life after he passed and revealed things that maybe that character didn't want known.
2: That could raise some ethical issues in the journalism, but I think ultimately, I mean, my understanding and the way that I saw it was that this gentleman, he had invited, you know, Brian Reed, the producer of S-Town, he didn't really invited him into his life, into his world, and he thought it was important for his story to be told. And I thought that even though the story goes into some incredibly personal
1: things, I thought that they, that they handled it with a lot of sensitivity. And there was a spirit of generosity to the storytelling. I think there was a kind of a spirit to the way he was telling the story. He wasn't trying to expose anything. He was just trying to lay a life out. Absolutely. And in the context of a town in Alabama.
0: You've really put your heart and soul and a lot of time into telling the story of Bernard. And obviously, Granter's readership is wide, but it's not universal. So where does the story go from here? How could it reach People all over the world, because it seems to me that it's a story that's a fairly universal story. You could apply it equally to Aboriginal people in Australia or in New Zealand or or in parts of Africa. So Bernard can become a kind of universal figure for the injustices that have been committed against minorities and indigenous people all over the world.
2: You know, Granta did put the story online for free, and I think that that allowed a lot of people to read it. That um, even if you weren't familiar with Granta you could it could kind of find your its way to you. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that I saw was that, you know, it was being shared quite widely, uh, people all over the place. And I think, you know, one of the great things of, you know, being on like on Twitter is that, you know, you can see kind of who's reading the story, where it's going. And, you know, I saw the story being shared, you know, in places like India, you know, for example, and, um, I mean, India is incredibly far from Canada's Arctic. And that kind of really warmed my heart to see that people from other places uh, could read the story and respond to it and, and feel that they are connected in some way with this human being from so far away.
0: Mm. I'm just wondering, many countries have set up truth and reconciliation commissions. These kinds of mm. stories are emerging all over the world. Is there healing? Is there hope? Will future generations... For sure, look back in horror at the things that were committed, but at the same time realize that the people that were their oppressors are now their neighbors, and there can be some hope, and there can be some moving forward together.
2: I think that there is hope, but I think it will take generations for some of these wounds to heal. And it won't just really happen by itself. I I think we kind of have to take proactive measures. And I think part of that is trying to empathize with People whose experience is different than your own, and I think that's often what journalism and and art is trying to make Fiction. people yeah. do is to see the world a little bit differently from a different point of view, and and maybe that has the capacity to change how you see the world and how you act in the world. I think you know even for me writing this story, it it changed how I saw the world, and through writing this story, I developed a friendship with a fifty-six-year-old. Inuit man, you know, otherwise I may not have never met someone like Bernard and developed a relationship with him and understood the world from his point of view and that really I think it's 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 that understanding and it allows you to um, change how you see people and change how you see yourself. The current pulled Bernard downstream. He had no energy left. Nearly two weeks had passed since he had walked away from Inuvik and he had used every bit of his strength to get this far. He thought about his family back home, his stepmother, Bessie, his biological parents, Alice and Joseph, and his many siblings. He wanted to see them again. He kicked his feet and swung his arms to get back to the shore, but he still had to cross this river. He climbed a hill to get a better view and saw a spot where he could safely cross. He traversed there and then came to two big lakes. Going around them would take too long so he waded between them. The water was shallow and he could see small fish darting between his legs. After passing through the lakes, he looked in the direction of Tuck. The sun was low and he was exhausted. He found a small hole to sleep in. It was a perfect fit for his emaciated body. He said his prayers and fell asleep. The next morning, a loud whirring noise woke him up. He thought he was dreaming, but he could feel the vibrations in the ground. He climbed out of the hole and saw a helicopter getting ready to take off. He ran towards it, but it was too late. It was climbing higher and higher into the sky. Bernard was near Kitigariut, the cursed land his great-grandfather and namesake, Mangalaluk had left behind. Seventy years earlier, hundreds of his ancestors had perished here. Now as Bernard crossed the landscape which his descendants were buried, he felt his own death was near. After walking for another hour, starving and barely able to keep his head up, he reached the top of a small hill. A sudden jolt brought life back into his weakened body. In the distance, he could see the pingos. This time, they were unmistakable. He fell to the ground and started crying. He thought about Dennis and Jack and wished they were with him. He hoped they were okay. Tears streamed down his face as he began to walk the last 10 kilometers home. A few days later, and a couple weeks before his 12th birthday, Bernard was recovering in Inuvik General Hospital. After 14 days of walking, he had lost nearly 30 pounds, and his shoes had to be cut off with scissors because his feet were so badly swollen. He was suffering from trench foot. After Bernard was found, 15 men in Inuvik and 12 in tuck, searched along the power lines for Dennis and Jack. Some walked for over 16 hours, but they recovered only one body, Jack's. People figured Dennis either drowned or was eaten by an animal. Every summer, his mother went looking for him along the power lines. She never found him. The story of Bernard's mystifying survival soon spread across the Western Arctic. Tuck's mare at the time, Emmanuel Felix, held a meeting with several other town elders after Bernard was found. They decided that should a highway ever be completed between Inuvik and Tuk, it should be named after the surviving boy. They insisted his Inuvialuit name should be used, the name of his great-grandfather and the founder of Tuk, Mangilaluk.